Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at the Denver Broncos, Lauren Lando. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So as I say every week, I was absolutely delighted to bring on today's guest and have a chat. So Lauren came on a couple of weeks ago and we had a chat over on YouTube as well if you want to uh, follow along with the video. Um, Lauren gets very animated, which I absolutely love, and uh, does lots of demonstrations while we're on the video. So uh, head over there if you want to have a look at the video too. But we discuss everything from uh, agility and change direction, so importance of the frontal and transverse plane and working working across all planes for the uh, for them qualities. Also foot positioning, which is a really interesting one, identifying energy leaks and where how we might look at the foot to, uh, to for for that. But also deceleration uh, and coaching linear speed to team sport athletes. So a really really in depth chat here, and I referenced quite a lot a UKCA presentation that he did a couple of years ago, which I watched immediately before speaking to Lauren on this because he goes into tons and tons of detail uh, in that presentation. So uh, head over to the UKC website if you want to have a look at that. But really, really good presentation. And hopefully that gives a bit of context to to, uh, to where I was going with the continual reference in this, this UKC presentation. But hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, I know you will because Lauren's a great dude and incredibly knowledgeable in this area and lots of other areas as well. Um, so enjoy this podcast and uh, I'd love to know what you think. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Lauren Lando. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pace of Performance podcast. This evening, I am absolutely honoured to welcome Lauren Landau. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. It looks an incredible view out there. Um, I almost thought of my foot in it. It was a Zoom background, but that's definitely uh, that's definitely real. So it looks great. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say maybe like a little green screen back there, and yeah. then we just put up whatever the weather is out here. Exactly. Looks very nice. Looks lovely. Um, so in true podcast style, anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a, a brief background on yourself, um, what you're currently doing, what you've done previously, education wise? Yeah, over to you. Sure. I'll start the front and then work backward. Or I'll start the front and then go backwards. Uh, currently, uh, I'm a head strength and conditioning coach for the Denver Broncos in the NFL. Uh, I also own Lando Performance, which has kind of been uh, something that's been built over the last 23 years of you know different various stops along the way, and now it's something that um, I'm fortunate enough to be the sole owner of and uh, kind of be, be able to put my vision to the different models I've seen over the years, now I can put my vision to it. So that's kind of where we are today. And then for me, uh, I've been in the field for 23 years, uh, went to school here locally, Northern Colorado, uh, you know, studied kinesiology with an emphasis in, in uh, nutrition as well, or a, a minor in nutrition. Uh, when I came out of school, it was one of those things where I wanted to uh, take my education, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to continue the educational route, and, and sometimes people do some, some things that are very traditional. And what I did is I got involved with some mentors early on, and I'll mention my mentors a lot during the course of this talk, but one of the first mentors who I came across was a guy named Greg Roscoff, and Greg was the developer of uh, a technique called muscle activation technique, MAT. It's a soft tissue technique, and uh, it's, it's really an in-depth look into uh, uh, muscle anatomy, physiology, and and really the, the biomechanics and the integration of everything. So that is something I kind of did. Um, it was a, a year-long course, and it was pretty intensive and extensive. And uh, during that time, I was still working and training athletes and uh, started more of an athletic club-type setting, working with all populations. I kind of was using my middle school athletes as my guinea pigs early on. You know, this is back in 98, 97 and uh, using them as little guinea pigs and trying to figure this thing out that we call performance training. During that time, I was able to mentor under a couple different people who were doing more, more on the performance side. Uh, but anybody that was doing performance work back then, it was really kind of good track and field coaches that had found a niche outside of the track. And they were working with the elite athletes just on the side, and it wasn't very uh, commercial at that point. And I, I mentored under him and spent time with him and saw some really good things he did and saw some things that I wanted to learn from and, and maybe not do quite the way he was from a business standpoint. Uh, fast forward after that time, I got involved in a, a company called Velocity Sports Performance. And Velocity was a, uh, um, you know, these franchise models of performance venues that really had a major stable of great coaches involved. I'm talking Victor Hall, Brent Calloway, uh, Stephen Plisk. I, I mean, the names were just amazing that we were networked with. And so uh, that was the route I went, and that was through uh, Lauren Seagrave. About the same time, I got to really get to know Dan Paff pretty well through a mutual client who played uh, football in the NFL. Got to know Dan. And, you know, you, when you're young in the field, you think you know it all, and you're like, oh, where are these people going to show me? And then you spend some time with them. You're like, oh, 
Yeah. I don't know a whole lot. And so, you know, that that's kind of that wake up moment where you don't know a damn thing. And, and every day you really kind of realize how much there is to know in our field and that maybe we don't know. So after the velocity uh, aspect, I uh, started working with a, an orthopedic group and we built a small footprint, if you will, of uh, performance and sports medicine hybrid into uh, sports performance model where we said, okay, I want to take them from functional to optimal. And that was through Stedman and Hawkins, the orthopedic firm. And then ultimately, that's where I am now. I had that business with the uh, orthopedic doctors. And after about three years of that, I, I bought them out and said, okay, now it's time for Lando Performance and for me to, to uh, impose my vision um, that I've seen over the course of my journey. Um, it's time for me to impose my vision into the private sector. So what, what was the vision? You know, the vision was, was <laughs> it's kind of silly. Um, you know, big space. I need space. I need open space to move. Uh, to me, that's, that's what I feel I'm, I'm good at. And what I've, you know, spent my life's work on is working on movement, high performance movement and making people more efficient. So I needed that, but I also, I wanted to pay people really well. Um, the way I looked at it from a business model standpoint, and I know this probably isn't the scope of the talk, but from a business model standpoint is I wanted coaches that could make a living in this field and not have to worry about holding down two or three other jobs to make their bills. So my vision was pretty simple. It was like, find a way to create a model where I can pay my people with a, a very nice percentage and everybody wins. And so that was as simple as it was. That's really what it came down to was, was having the control to be able to pay my people what I wanted to. Like you say, I know it's a slightly off, off topic, but I'm really interested in it and I'm sure other people are um, in terms of the business side. I mean, do you enjoy the business side of it? I love the strategy of business. To me, the strategy of business is just like sports and it's just like training. You know, we've got to solve for some unknowns. We have some variables and we have some constraints. You know, in business, we all have very similar constraints. Who works through those constraints the best uh, usually ends up winning. So uh, I, I love the business side. I love the challenge of it for sure. And how many guys do you have at Lando Performance? How many I guys working for you? I have 30 coaches on staff. Oh, wowza. Yeah. And of the 30, I'd say 12 are what I would consider full-time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a mixture of general pop and athletes? Yeah. General pops, athletes from the most elite down to the middle school and elementary age athletes who are early LTAD and just skipping around and jumping around for about 30 minutes. So it's pretty nice. fun. Yeah. I, don't, I, I still don't get, and I don't think probably a lot of coaches do here in the UK, the scale of of things over there and the, the the space that you guys have available and the fantastic facilities you guys have and probably how many people are able to access these kind of facilities like yours. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're very fortunate. And because yeah. of that, it creates a lot of competition. And, and what happens is the consumer doesn't always understand like what is good and what is not. And so, you know, you have to do a really good job. You know, once they kind of walk in the door and they do things, they, they realize pretty quickly what's good and what's not. And so that's our goal is to, to keep quality high. Absolutely. So the, the, the real crux of the conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, the real crux of the conversation, and this, I think it's pretty built off your UKCA talk a couple of years ago, which oh, I yeah. thought was excellent, by the way, and watched a couple of times. Um, and one thing you emphasized throughout the 
the presentation and I encourage people to, to watch that if they can. And it was around agility in the change and change direction, but the importance of frontland transverse plane um, drills and exercises. Why do, why do you put such a, a heavy emphasis on that? And why were you trying to, I suppose, put that across so, so heavily in the presentation? Sure. I think uh, I, there's a few different ways I look at things, and I'll answer this in a couple different ways. The first way I'll look at it is uh, Stephen Plisk, who I mentioned earlier, is a mentor of mine, and he would always talk about in periodization and programming, he would always talk about, you know, to be a better specialist, you need to be a better generalist. And, you know, to be a sniper, you have to really understand in our field, you have to understand uh, biomechanics, your anatomy, your biochemistry, uh, your programming, your periodization, all your different subject matters that make up what we do, you have to be really good at those general subjects to be to really dive in and give people something pretty specific, pretty individual. So I, I would always hear him say that, and I, was, I started thinking about that. I was like, gosh, you know, when we look at movement, like there's, there's infinite movements we can do, but if you really break it down to fundamental quadrants and our cardinal directioning, I mean, really, what can you do in those planes? And so I start breaking things down in that kind of that that generalist mindset, not reductionist, but a generalist mindset of saying, OK, if I can be really good moving in a sagittal plane, whether that's forwards, whether that's backwards. Um, and then if I can be really good moving in a frontal plane, which is like a, a shuffle type drill. And then if I can be really good in a transverse plane, the rotational aspect, those are really the crux of, of how you build change of direction. At the end of the day, I'm going to use a frontal plane type movement or a transverse plane movement to bridge two gaps of acceleration. That's usually what happens on the playing field. Now, you might have bandwidths in each one of those planes of movement that, that it maybe doesn't look straight sagittal. Maybe there's a curvilinear aspect to it. But when I go to put on the brakes, I've got to have specific angles. And if I'm looking to come out of it, I'm going to have a rotational moment about the body if I'm looking to drop step out and work on my change of direction to get back into acceleration. So the way I looked at it, Rob, was if, if I could be really good at those, those general subjects, if you will, of movement, and if I could understand the decelerative component in each one of those planes of motion, I win. I win. So, you know, I know we'll probably get into the conversation point where people will talk about you know, you know, reacting to the environment and, and, you know, the environmental constraints. Well, we have constraints within our being. And if, we, if we're not a good locomotion person, we're not a good mover, we don't understand fluidity, we don't understand orchestration, we don't understand these things, you can make the environment as dynamic as you want. I don't think I'm going to be as efficient as I could be, is if I spent a decent chunk of time of mastering myself and how I move in space. So I think we'll always have variables, and I, I think to me, do I want to control the environment or do I want to control the person? One thing that's come a couple of times is, and with Nick Grantham, I don't know if you've, you've heard of Nick, um, I think he spoke in the US a couple of times, he's been on the podcast a couple of times anyway, and he was talking about through his career moving from generalist to specialist and then back to generalist as he's yeah. moved as he's made that transition would you would you agree with that kind of kind of statement and how your mind has has developed and and evolved i, I think it has to because yeah. the layers are so many and the subject matters are so broad in, in our field that you have to have a pretty good understanding or at least have people in your camp who have good understandings of everything you still have to have a whole vision of the whole um, if you want to be this, you know, this sniper and you just want to work with pole vaulters, that's fine. 
But at the end of the day, you better have a pretty good understanding of the whole spectrum in a holistic manner. So, so now, uh, Rob, I want to go back to the other point when you asked about the uh, frontal plane, transverse plane. Of course. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. No, 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 you're fine. I didn't finish uh, where I was at in my thought, too, was I also look at it from an injury standpoint. Like if we look at like mechanism of injuries and you pay attention to them, especially, you know, we can look at soft tissue or we can look at connected tissue and we can look at non-contact. When you look at like a, at the end of the day, if I'm, um, you know, moving in a sagittal plane and I go to decelerate, we can all agree there's a high element of shearing force at the knee joint. There's an element of rotation, no doubt. So you've got, you've got torque and you've got shear, but shear probably takes a, a more brunt of, the, of the, uh, the load, if you will. So now if I'm moving in a frontal plane, if I'm doing a shuffle and I go to decelerate, I've got a massive amount of torque against that joint. So I started looking at those different movement patterns, and, and I basically said this. If, if you look at, I, I always reference uh, joint structure and function, uh, joint function and structure by, joint structure and function, sorry, by Norkin and Lavange. And we talk about all these different exercises, all these different movement possibilities. And at the end of the day, we can really narrow all movements that we do. We can narrow them down to four common forces, and that's shear, distraction, torque, and compression. And so if I can build closed models where I work on the robustness of the athlete. Hey, we're going to shuffle and decel, shuffle and decel. We're going to marinate in that and stick and stabilize to then make you more resilient to the torquing forces that happen at the knee joint. And if we do the same thing in the sagittal plane, it's the same idea. Um, so that's why I kind of looked at the quadrants that we talked about because every time I work on those quadrants and if I spend a decent amount of time of a deceleration skill, I do believe that we can teach the body, the neuromuscular system, to be more robust against those types of forces when they when they come at us on the field. Mm -hmm. I'd love to dive into that about deceleration, um, okay. if we can. So from a from a um, sagittal plane, so obviously forwards and back. Before we move on to the, the frontal plane stuff, what what goes through your mind in terms of teaching progressions when you are when you get an athlete in and are starting from scratch through deceleration? Yeah, I think it's it's multiple layers as well, and I think it matters on the training age of the athlete. Yeah. Um, but, you know, early on, if we're looking at early on development, you know, it's just, you know, teaching them to hold good squat patterns and good getting the good lunging patterns, hold good lunging patterns in an isometric fashion, being able to get into those bend positions that ultimately look like deceleration. And I would do that even with my elites. You know, a lot of my elites, uh, a lot of elites don't bend and move as well as you would think, as you know. Um, one, whether it's the training age saturation, maybe they haven't had the same coach for multiple years of training, and maybe they just didn't seem to care when they were going through these rudimentary stages of learning. Uh, so for me, it's, it's not that I want to make everything closed because I'm very big into open movement, but I think early on you have to teach some closed patterns, and I'll get into that a little bit more of how I see movement, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll just start with different skipping patterns, and then I have to then, then they have to absorb into a bilateral deceleration. You know, I might start into some easy jogging tempos into a bilateral deceleration, sit it down into the squat position. But as they become more versed with that and, and better tolerant and they have better control when you see that, it's like, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take it into a light acceleration, then you're going to decelerate, and we're going to go into a split stance. So I'm still bilateral, but I'm split. And so I'm working on those different concepts, those capabilities of the body to be able to put on the brakes at different angles, at different vectors, at different speeds. Um, so those are the things that I kind of pay attention to early. But the thing I love, say I'm doing like a, a linear XL, put on the brakes, getting good decelerative. 
Then I take them into a back pedal action and I have them put on the brakes. So now I'm getting deceleration. I'm getting that eccentric loading in that in that reverse uh, that reverse mechanic that reverse mechanics. So now I get great deceleration on the Achilles. So when you look at the forward and you look at the back, I mean, there's some really cool things that are happening from a tissue tolerance standpoint. And I do these things at low intensity. They're, they're not, you know, run full speed, put on the brakes. I mean, there is a progression of this thing over time. And, and that progression over time ultimately becomes, hey, all right, now you're going to accelerate 15 yards and you're going to put on the brakes at seven. Now you're going to put on the brakes at five. Now you're going to put the brakes on at three. Now you're going to put the brakes on when I clap. So there's different ways that you can make these things go from, from closed to open. And even though it looks like the same thing, it's just what are they reacting to? What are they reacting to that ultimately uh, changes that, that, that lens? Mm -hmm. So in the, in the frontal play, I'm guessing the principles are the same, but is there any, any – okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd say here's where the principles change, right? It, it changes based on, on foot positioning. You know, when we're, when we're walking, jogging, and running – there's different elements of strike pattern and positioning. Mm -hmm. When I'm in a frontal plane motion, you know, it's, it's a, a edges. I start to use the, in, the inversion, eversion quality of the foot. Still pronation, supination of the foot, but it's, it's in a different plane. So I'm stressing um, those structures differently up the chain because what happens, uh, perfect example. So we can talk about when I strike in, in forward stride, if I'm running, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike the ground, you know, whether it's depending on, on the – who the athlete is, they might strike more supinated early on, and then they're going to roll into more of a mid-stance into pronation. And as they go into pronation, Rob, what happens is the naviculars, the foot goes into pronation, and that midfoot starts to add up toward the floor and toward midline. The navicular is going to go down toward the floor. When the, when the navicular does that, the talus is going to follow it into internal down into further adduction, and then the tibia is going to internally rotate. So you have those different forces that you're working on in a sagittal plane that are creating like torque and, and shear like we talked about. But the same thing now happens in the frontal plane. When I shuffle and put on the brakes, I've got one foot. When I put on those brakes shuffling, I've got one foot that is extremely um, eccentrically controlling supination, and I've got one foot that's eccentrically controlling pronation simultaneously. So that's to me, that's like secret sauce because now I'm bolstering the two sides of the equation of pronation and supination in an eccentric fashion. I look at pronation and supination like a teeter-totter. You don't want too much of one. You don't want too much of the other. How do I find the ability to manage and mitigate both? And to me, I love the side shuffle drills, even though like side shuffle and sporting action, it's usually like one step and go. But what I do is I'll saturate the skill, put them under different forces, different loads, so they can, they can absorb those forces. So that, that's kind of a long-winded answer on that because we can get in deeper into the foot if you want as well. Um, but you have three phases of the foot. You've got a rear foot, midfoot, and forefoot. And all those phases of the foot are doing different things at different times based on what part of the foot and where the loading is. So, you know, if I, if I go decelerate and say I'm decelerating or I'm, I'm shuffling left to right on a, a frontal plane shuffle, when I go to put on the brakes on that right foot, my right side rear foot is going to evert. My midfoot is going to adduct toward the floor, and my forefoot is going to abduct slightly. That's just how it works with the forces of the, of the ground. And so what you do is you play around with these shuffle patterns, and you can work on that eccentric control of, of pronation and supination without understanding all the intrinsic mechanics that are happening at each phase of the foot in each step. 
So how, in terms of an asset, not assessments, but I suppose ongoing, ongoing assessments while training, how are yeah. you identifying where people are potentially having energy leaks and where you need to spend a little bit more time? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of really good examples of what mm. I used to think and what I kind of do think okay. now. Love it. I used to think, you know, you get somebody out, you take them out of their shoes, you put them on a squat or a lunge, and you see this great contoured arch, and you see this high arch, and you see all these great things, and you're like, oh, that's a strong, stable foot. That's great. That's great. And in many cases, it, it, it might be, but in many cases, what we see is we have people that actually, they get their dorsiflexion more from their phalanges. And when they get their dorsiflexion more from their uh, uh, forefoot, what happens is they actually keep the midfoot plantar flexed. So when the midfoot's plantar flexed, the foot looks like it's still got that contoured arch. Well, that's not a good thing because then the talus can't move and glide. So what I look for now, <laughs> I used to always think that that high arch thing was a good thing. And people always do those arch type exercises. You need the foot. I always talk about this in different podcasts. And I talk about you need to have stiffness in the foot, but you need to have compliancy in the foot. You need the rear foot, midfoot, and forefoot to be able to mold and adapt to that flooring. And so you do want that. It's just a matter of degree. It it's, goes back to the seesaw. So for me now, I look for somebody that has a little bit more of a flatter foot, a foot that can actually splay to the ground, not arch up, splay, because that's when we get those intrinsic stabilizing and doing more of that eccentric control. When the foot's clawing, that's more of a concentric action. I want more of a splay that creates more of that eccentric um, activity of the intrinsics of the foot. And that allows me to actually have cleaner motion um, from the rear foot, midfoot, and forefoot, um, not to mention the ability of the talus to glide and the tibia to be able to move forward and back really well. Because when an athlete loses the ability for the tibia to move forward and back, I'll tell you what, it's a death trap when they go to decelerate. They start to lose bend. They start to pick up range of motion elsewhere. So now what I do is I look at my athletes with their shoes off, ask them to dorsiflex, and then when they dorsiflex, if they're pulling up more with their extensor digitorum and their extensor hallucis, more than their anterior tips, like you've got to pay attention to that because if you just look at dorsiflexion with shoes on, you're going to be biased to what you're seeing. You take their shoes off and you see when they come up with their toes, you, you've seen it, when they come up excessively with the toes in extension, that midfoot is still more plantar flexed. And that's not a good thing. So, so for me, those are kind of my early on things that I look at with the foot. Like how well can they absorb into the ground? And so I put my guys barefoot all the time in all my sports. Mm -hmm. it's, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the foot if that's all right. Because we, we, sure. we, I spoke to JB Marin about this Um Probably probably a year ago, um, and a, another really interesting chat with, with him about that. But in terms of isolated exercises for the foot, given you've just explained how important that is in various different movements, is there anything yeah. you do specifically for the foot itself? I'd say fashion. Yeah, you know what? It's funny. I uh, I love the the open chain exercises that JB Moran uh, has uh, that he's put out there. And those are things that I do with my athletes as well. We'll do different open chain positions, but we'll also play around with what I would consider more isolated positions. And it's kind of hard to explain, but what I'll do is I'll put them into different positions based on um, muscular action. So if, uh, if I want to take somebody into plantar flexion, if I have somebody uh, seated uh, with a knee bent, foot plantar flex to the floor, I'll have them plantar flex to the floor and I'll have them internally rotate the foot 
from the axis of the tibia, so the vertical axis of the tibia, I'll have them internally rotate. Say it's the right foot that I'm talking about right now. I'll have them internally rotate as they go in. And what happens is you get really good activation of the uh, medial head of the gastroc and the posterior tibialis. You do the same thing in the plantar flex position in the external rotation with the knee bent. You get great activation of the peroneus longus and the lateral gastroc head. So there's, and, and uh, I say lateral gastroc, it's actually more lateral soleus. Um, but you get great intrinsic activation of those things. So between some of those patterns that I'll do, and I'll work all the way up into the different quadrants of positioning to get anterior tibs, popliteus, um, soleus, I'll flip them over to get soleus. I'm sorry, uh, straight leg to get gastroc. And then um, I'll play around with different positions um, then once they get up to their feet. So I'll do some, what I consider some isolated open chain exercises. So they're not as, they're, they're maybe a little bit more isolated than what JB has, but I love JBs because they're, they're, they're full integration of open chain uh, movement. And I've been implementing those, but then I take them right into a closed chain stance, bilateral, unilateral. And when I take them into like their bilateral um, isolation, I'll just put, have my athletes standing barefoot and all I'll have them do is rotate. And they'll rotate. So that way they have to feel inversion, eversion, or pronation, supination qualities. And I'll do the same thing. I'll take them single leg and I'll have them do like medicine ball rotations. So again, they're getting that deep intrinsic firing. But the problem is when people do a lot of barefoot work is they go for the gusto. Like it's, it's, it's not about sprinting barefoot. It's about doing these intrinsic activation-based exercises to give you a better foundational stability. You know, I'll lunge my athletes. I'll squat them absolutely barefoot. But I think people are getting a little too carried away of doing all their locomotion drills barefoot. I think that, um, you know, there, is the juice worth the squeeze in some of those aspects or the risk benefit? So, would, would, would it be something that runs throughout your program year round, Lauren, with, with every individual or certain individuals? Okay. Yep. yep. Year round, year yep. round. And, and it may be just as simple as, hey, today we're going to do our, bare, our, our, our active dynamic warm up barefoot. It may be that simple, but then it might get into some low amplitude hops that are either bilateral or unilateral. And I change the direction that they're going, I'll change the, the amplitude that they have to go within. Um, and then I play around too with different things. Um, uh, with athletes who are maybe in season, I'll play around from hard surface to soft surface sticking patterns. So they may start on, on a gymnastics mat, let's say, and they may start on their right foot and their single leg and they'll hop quickly down to the hard surface and then real quick rebound and stick and stabilize on the unstable surface. And so what I try to do, I don't go for the instability to make it harder. I go for the instability to teach them how to be more compliant to the ground. So I look for them to rebound off of the harder surface to be a little bit more that stiffness reactive. And then I'll turn around and say, okay, now be compliant. So I play around with that uh, on a weekly basis. And you can bias it based on pronatory or supernatory based on which leg you're hopping with. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Lauren. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around deceleration and coaching linear speed to team sport athletes. So as you will have heard in part one, tons and tons of detail in this area. And as I was getting through this episode, you try to you start. I started to understand how much depth of knowledge, the depth of knowledge that Lauren has in this area, which is absolutely incredible. So hopefully, I did a half decent job of, of teasing that out but definitely more goods to come in part two this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by athletemonitoring.com 
the world's most comprehensive, versatile, and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So athletemonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training, and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, athletemonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what athletemonitoring.com can do for you, visit athletemonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at athletemonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute, so to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. I'm so inside glad we've got inside leg or outside leg. Of course, I'm, I'm so glad we've got a video on here because I'm, I'm, I'm following along here with my, my video. <laughs> oh, good. good. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one quote that I really like that you, you, um, that you said in your UKCA conference video, and this kind of emphasized what I've just been saying, I guess, and it was the knee is the servant of the foot and the hip. And that yeah. obviously emphasizing the importance of what's going on above and below. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I've always looked at, and Greg Roscoff was the one that really opened my eyes to this. And I think we've all kind of seen that over time. You know, you look at the foot and we talked about the foot having three degrees of freedom. It moves in, it moves in the, uh, shoot, it, it's got more than three degrees of freedom because if you look at the rear foot in itself, the rear foot in itself, if it's got, you know, a sagittal plane moment, it's got a frontal plane moment, it's got, um, a transverse plane moment, and then the midfoot, and then the forefoot, they all have the same abilities. So there's a high uh, availability of potential instability that you can have through the foot. And the hip is the same way. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, we've got multiple abilities of range motion that we can go through in the hip. Well, the knee doesn't have that. The knee is primarily sagittal. It's got a little bit of rotation, not much. So at the end of the day, if you're unstable in the hip, and if you're unstable through the foot, that knee becomes the torque converter of what those two guys maybe can't uh, um, decelerate. So to me, it's really important that you, you have a program that is, is, has the eccentric control in the weight room, the eccentric control on the movement side, and that you look at these general locomotion patterns because you have to constitute for all those ranges of motion that the foot can ultimately go through and then the hip as well, as well in a dynamic environment. So do you think the, do you think the knee gets a little bit too much focus when they, they one, the one especially yeah. when there's an injury 
when there's a knee injury, I think people get hyper-focused on the knee and they're not spending enough time working on the foot or the hip uh, or the trunk. So now look, is it important? But, you know, a lot of times if you look at those people and they're coming back from, if they're coming back from ACL and they did a patella tendon graft, like, you know yourself, you get too much knee flexion um, extension type patterns, they light up. So I always say if the stove is hot, quit touching it. Let's go to some hinging based patterns. Let's go to some different things that we can work around that knee. And all of a sudden the patella tendinosis calms down because we weren't stressing, overstressing it. So to me, it's like, uh, you know, it, everything's important as we know. But again, you have to have an understanding of what the mechanism of, is of the hip and what the mechanism of the foot and the ankle joint are and how they influence what the knee is capable of doing or not capable of doing. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to rewind a little bit and go back to deceleration if we can. So we talked about energy leaks in terms of the, the foot, but in terms of coaching and identifying if you're working with an individual athlete, exactly where that athlete needs to be worked on in terms of a deceleration pattern, but maybe from, are you seeing commonalities within your athletes that you can easily book it athletes to, to, um, to work on certain things when it comes to deceleration, what goes through your, what's going through your mind when we, when you're looking at, uh, at deceleration patterns and trying to work out where to spend your time to, to fix them and improve them? Yeah, I, I think what I do is I'll pay attention watching the athlete, maybe do a closed drill in front of me or just even watch some of their footage on film or tape or their sport. And uh, look what happens when they go to decelerate. When they go to decelerate, are they is their base really wide? Is their base really narrow? Like how unaware are they? Because I think a lot of athletes are truly unaware. I think some coaches said, hey, get your feet really wide. Hey, get your feet really narrow. And so what happens is the athlete adopts models sometimes that, that maybe a coach wanted them to do that maybe biomechanically wasn't great. So what I do is I look to, to what does their base look like when they go to decelerate, but then I pay attention to what does their next action look like when they come out of it? Um, do they lose their balance? Do they take a cyclical uh, pattern in uh, locomotion afterwards instead of more of a punch drive aspect? Um, do they, are they aware of where their tibias are angled? Are they aware, are they slipping when they come out of their decelerations? What I do is I'll look at their base, but then I look at the subsequent motion. And I also pay attention to who are the athletes that can decelerate one foot? One foot. Like if I'm moving in a frontal plane and I've got to go back into a sprint, am I, do I not have the wherewithal, the awareness, or even the strength or even the mobility in my joints to be able to have one leg that's a break and another one that's a gas? And that's one thing I talk about to my athletes. It's about the ability of one foot truly having the ability to, to break and the other one's got the gas. Because at the end of the day, I'm trying to close a gap. I'm trying to close a gap if I'm a defender going against an offensive player who knows where they're going. Can I be able to put my foot in the ground, be able to put on the brakes while the other leg is already going into acceleration? A lot of athletes gather step. And so what I'll do is I'll pay attention to those athletes and say, okay, is it a relative strength issue? Is it a base issue? Is it a, a lack of locomotion coming out of the break? Is it a, is, is the surface wet? Like what were the results of why they did what they did? So I kind of back engineer it from there, but I also pay attention to just watching them do closed drills, do a buildup and let me see a decelerate. And you know, some, some kids are, have been taught to really be violent and stomp their feet. And some guys know how to soften it and be ready for their next step. And so what I do is I just kind of look at that and I try not to overcoach. I truly, even though I do like closed drills, I try not to overcoach. I like to see what they do in front of me. And then from there, hey, you know what? Try this on the next one. Try this. 
Let him get five to eight reps before you even say anything else. I want you to feel it. If I'm constantly giving you a, a, a cue or something to change, you're never getting a chance to feel something on your own. Matter of fact, I was working with an athlete today who was uh, just working on like a, a, that quick break in gas. And the first six times he didn't get it. And then the seventh time he got it, and he didn't lose it after that. So they've got to feel it. They've got to feel it. How the much? Other, uh, the other thing I write for yeah, come. When they come out of that, that deceleration step, what's the rhythm look like when they self-organize? What's the rhythm look like on that next step? That gives me a pretty good indication of how efficient somebody is in deceleration and then in their subsequent transition. How much emphasis are you putting on video for these guys? Yes, looking at video in terms of a, uh, what they're doing in games like a, uh, to get contextual information, but in terms of you videoing these guys for your education as well as theirs of what's happening and what's maybe not happening. Yeah, I, I do love the video, but I think that you can, you can be hoodwinked by video, um, especially when you slow motion it. <laughs> you know, I, I see a lot of people putting these great slow motion videos on, on Instagram, and it makes the person look really more athletic than they maybe are. Okay, yeah. But I, I do, I will use the slow motion to show, like, shapes and angles and shank positions. Um, hey, here, you see your inside edge here? Beautiful, I love it. You remember what that felt like? So trying to create a correlation of, of what it looks like and what it felt like for them. Because when an athlete is going to change direction from a D-cell and they hit inside edge on that break foot, they'll feel like, like it, how, how quickly they popped out of that. And so those are different things that I try to talk to them about. And I try not to, I, I try not to lead their feeling, but I try to embrace their feeling once they tell me. So, so how, when you hit that inside edge, what felt different? Man, I felt like I shot right out of it. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm picking up on something that you said a minute ago, and that was not trying to say too much and overcoaching. Yeah. Is that just looking back over your career, have you, are you saying less and less as oh you've. My God. Yes, okay. Yeah. Less and less and way yeah. less complicated. Yeah. You and I can have a complicated conversation on foot mechanics, but I'm going to talk about inside edge to the athlete. Um, and I, yeah, I try not to say as much anymore. It's amazing how, when you quit talking, the athletes tend to get better. Yeah. Do you, do you find that's just a general thing with younger coaches wanting to, wanting to prove the worth, wanting to just wanting to try so hard to, to make a difference, to make a positive difference. And then as you actually go on, you realize that's not really having the effect that you want it to have. Yeah. I think for me, it, um, I had to really take it back to the way that I learned as well. Because I think we can hear ourselves. And, and now when I hear coaches that overcoach, I'm like, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I'm like, oh, just stop. <laughs> but, but I was that guy too. So for me, I had to understand that I was maybe in some aspects confusing my athletes or in other aspects, um, I was making them worse. I was slowing them down. Now they're thinking too much. The, the old adage of paralysis by overanalysis. And that's what was happening. I'd like to move things on to more a linear speed focus for, for team sport athletes, if that's all right. Sure. And, and a common theme, a common question from me today seems to be how you're actually identifying where to spend your time. And the only reason I'm, I'm kind of focusing on that, especially in team sports, I mean, take this situation we're currently in out of the, out of the, out of the picture. But generally, time's very limited. Even time generally is very limited for the athlete in the facility, but even more limited for us as strength and conditioning coaches as the, the, the time gets smaller and smaller for, for everyone involved. How are you identifying from a linear speed 
perspective um, what the athletes actually need so you can spend the time that you've got that's so precious on what really matters. Yeah, I think for me, I have to look at the sport and what is the sport primarily, where does it primarily live? And what we know with the sports that I work with and most field sports are really, it lives in acceleration. And so I spend a, a good amount of time in acceleration, but I still spend time on maximum velocity qualities. Uh, I think that's critical to still develop the skill of maximum velocity, even though some athletes may never even touch it in their given sport. But I think it's important for them to understand the skill when that, when that should happen they've got the requisite and they just pull it right out of their, their pocket and they go. Um, so for me, like in most team sports that I see, um, you know, going back to acceleration, uh, most athletes really, they're, they're very, in a change of direction sport, they're very cyclical coming out of a, a change of direction. And so for me, if I can build a good understanding of acceleration patterning and, and how, how you should punch forward and, and you should minimize heel casting up to the rear end and, and keep a low heel um, lift um, as you're going through your thigh punch and acceleration. I think the better I coach that in acceleration to a team sport, the more that it, it um, that the the athletes can auto regulate when they go to change of direction work. Like if I've done a good job of grooving those habits in, and then on my change of direction days, I've shown them, hey, the same thing we worked on Monday with acceleration. This is the bridge in your change of direction work. The more I've done a good job on my Mondays, um, then the better it blends into their Tuesday and Friday change of direction days. So I spend a lot of time in acceleration and I don't get carried away though with a lot of crazy drills. These aren't track and field athletes. I might have some athletes that have some genetic potential to be track and field, but they don't play that. So what I need to do is I need to teach off of a technical model and I need to have bandwidths of what is acceptable for them based on what their jobs are. You know, a defensive back and a running back, they're going to hit positions differently than my wide receivers. So based on the nature of play. So I have a technical model that I work off of. And, and if I'm looking at it purely from a closed technical model standpoint, I have, I have four landmarks that I look for. And it's posture is number one. I call it the four P's because I'm too dumb to remember any other letters. <laughs> but number one's posture. Number two is position, and position ultimately is limb positioning. So limb positioning between, uh, you know, front side thigh and arm action. And then um, uh, the next P is placement. And placement is, is your strike, your foot strike. What part of the foot and where is it hitting relative to, is it acceleration or maximum velocity? And then my last P is patterning. And patterning is just rhythm, rhythm. That's the number one. Posture and rhythm are like critical for me. And then uh, what I start to do is I, I look at those other, you know, position and placement, and I think about what are the three main drills I can get all this across in, and that's what I do with my field sport athlete or my, my, my team athletes as I sit there and say, how can I influence those four Ps? Because going back to that generalist specialist idea, if I take care of those four Ps, a lot of the rest of it takes care of itself. It really does. And what I do is I just find drills that are marching in nature, skipping in nature, running in nature that will allow me to replicate that. And then when they get on the field, go self-organize. Do what you do when you play your position. There was a little discussion off the back of a, a chat with that, that I had with actually uh, JB last night on, uh, on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it was around, especially during this time, where the focus on acceleration and our, our max velocity and then how that's going to influence um, when we actually do get back to some sort of normality. And there's yeah. a couple of guys in rugby, uh, and it's not – 
one or the other, but I know everyone likes a one or the other kind of question. But yeah. which one would you spend your most time on if you only could have time to spend on one? And there's a little bit of discussion around that. And, and one train of thought was trying to focus on max velocity because the acceleration is more likely to be uh, to, in games, in, in, in training games or in drills, like sports drills. Would that be something you'd agree with or would you go another way? I don't know. I think because I think that's a that's a good point. But I think at the end of the day, like the angles that are specific to accelerate, are we, we're talking about like specifically with, you know, athletes might not have the ability to to, uh, you know. Uh-huh. When they come back to their sport. If their sport is primarily played in acceleration, but they spend a lot of time on max V. I, I think I worry about like the uh, the the forces put into the ground relative to the Achilles. Okay. That Interesting. Happen in, that happen in acceleration that don't happen at max V that would concern me if they haven't been working on max V, if they haven't been working on acceleration, but their sport is primarily that I think that becomes a, a concern. I understand there's an elastic component there's a eccentric component to the Achilles at max V, but the, the pure angling and the amount of torque that's happening at the Achilles has got to be much higher in acceleration. Do you think coming out of this period, I'm guessing another question already because it's it's probably the same answer as everyone gives, but do you think we'll be in a situation where athletes are going to see a spike in injuries, not, no matter whether it's your sport or any other sport because of this situation? My, my concern is if athletes aren't, if they're getting out and they're sprinting and they're doing all these things we're talking about, sprinting, jumping, shuffling, karaoke, they're moving, I don't have that great a concern. Okay. If, they're, if they're dosing it right and – and they're, they're programming it right. Um, but I think my concern becomes to the athletes who are just on the bike. They're on the elliptical. They're on the bike. They're doing their conditioning. They're in the pool. They're, uh, they're doing just weight room. That becomes my concern because there's nothing you can do in the weight room that, that mimics the, the, contract, the angular velocities that are happening in sprinting and the forces that are happening in sprinting. You can't mimic that. Um, the, the rate of speed, the frequency of the speed, and the angular velocities, I think, that if you can get out and you can sprint, I think that people will be fine. But if people are not getting out and doing those things in a good structured program, I think it could be problematic. Do you do you guys do any any sort of profiling when athletes are coming into your facility in terms of again what how to best paint the picture of where time should be spent? Sure, I think it it really determines you know which athletes coming in. We'll look at maybe more of an elite athlete. Uh, we're looking at an elite athlete. Um, we look at the window that they're going to be in for. You know, what's their time frame? Is it a fighter who's coming in for an eight-week fight camp? Is it a, a NFL player who's coming in for you know three weeks before training camp? So what we do is we'll we'll look at okay, what's our time? What's realistic? What do they what do they think they want to come in and achieve? And then what's truly realistic? And so it's a conversation that has to happen on the front end for sure. But there is a different requisite of testing that will be done when they come in as well. Um, it's uh, you know modified performance. It matters how much time you have with them, but it's it's a modified kind of SFMA that is really table based and looking at uh, integrated ranges of motion and isolated ranges of motion. Uh, there's also uh, you know uh, I'd say more of a hybrid kind of FMS that happens through our warm up, you know where it's just looking at them going through different bend patterns and different motions. Um, barefoot through an active dynamic warm up, and from there, coach will will start creating. Okay, 
knowing what the history was, knowing what the coach is seeing, okay, here's the prescription or menu items that we put forward to you if you're here for three weeks, if you're here for eight weeks, if you're here for a full off season. So those are different tests that each coach will kind of do independently. Each one of them has a little bit different variation of what they'll do per the sport. Um, I have coaches that are very softball focused, but at the end of the day, I tell my coaches, it doesn't matter like biomechanics or biomechanics. So, but some might have a little bit more of a rotational component into their exam than someone else. Mm -hmm. So you've gone through some of the, the things that you'd, you'd focus on from an acceleration point of view. When it comes to basics in mastering max velocity, maybe some things that run constantly through your through your program, not matter which time of the year it is, just the, the basics. What can you identify some of them of what some of them are, and can you communicate that with us? Sure. I mean, I keep it really simple. Yeah. Again. I look at the four P's that I look at acceleration. I do the same thing for maximum velocity. Uh, I look at my posture, my position, my placement, and my uh, patterning. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll work on different series of drills. You know, some people call them dribbles. Um, you know, I have three go-to drills in my max V setup. It's a heel slide where I'm just teaching like thigh lift and, and knee flexion. So kind of like the heels kissing up to the rear end, uh, kind of like a hybrid of a, a high knee and a butt kick. Then I take them into a step over, which is more of a dribble. So now we're getting the, the heel kissing up to the rear end and then it pulls through. So the shank is at 90 degrees right before it gets ready for its ground strike. And it's just working on the tempo and the patterning of that um, and the positioning of it and the placement, the placement of the strike of the ground. And then my last drill that I do is a straight legged shuffle transition into a bound. Even though it's horizontal in nature, the positioning that I'm in when I strike the ground with the foot uh, the co-contraction I'm getting from the hamstrings and glutes are a pretty nice little mimic of the position and placement that I want in max V. So what I do is I just groove the heck out of those three to four drills in max V, those three to four drills in acceleration. And outside of those drills, Rob, I say go. <laughs> I want you to go. Flying 10s, flying 20s, build-ups if it's max V. Um, I don't... I don't um, you know, I know there's some coaches that really spend a lot of times in wickets. I don't spend a lot of time on wickets. I think that uh, um, a lot of my athletes, I mean, it, it's great to be able to teach people to get front side, but I think also I'm afraid of the paralysis by over-analysis with it. And, and, and quite frankly, there's a better coach to give you that than I am. Mm -hmm. A couple so, of times – oh, go, mate, sorry. Oh, I, I say, you know, I spend a lot of time on flying 10s and flying 20s uh, for a majority of my field sport athletes mm -hmm. for Max B. Aspects. Okay. One thing that's come up a couple of times with um, track coaches, well, track coaches that have maybe transitioned to team sport settings who've been on the podcast, and a couple have mentioned that what they've seen when transitioning is that coaches in them team sport regressing uh, acceleration and max velocity drills so much in the early instance that, um, that there's, there's a long way to go from there and, and regressing things too much. Is that thing, Is that something that you would agree with from a, from a team sport angle that we, we kind of dumb things down too much for the, for the athletes that we're working with? Yeah, I, I can't speak to anybody else's kind of environment other than mine. But I think what I do is I speak to my athletes about um, the relevance of the context of maybe the drilling is that what you're asking yeah absolutely like, yeah we, we drill so much that we get away from actually the real deal exactly exactly yeah. yeah and i think that goes back to a force tolerance like 
you know, I, I can provide good context of these positions that you need to hit. But if you don't go out and do them, like all that other drilling work was for not. Um, so I, I can teach you good context of these positions and these placements and these rhythms and these timings. But at the end of the day, you've got to do the real deal. And that's why I don't spend a lot of like I'll groove them as a potentiation into my session, like a technical potentiation. And then once we get into our sprint work, it's sprint work. And um, so I, I could see where that could happen. I think from the other standpoint is tissue tolerance. You, you know, the, the amount of force going into the Achilles or into the hamstrings or into the hip flexors in drilling is nothing compared to the amount of torque that's going to be on the hip flexor when you get into a backside recovery. So I think that, that, that for sure that could be a problem. Awesome. I'm sure that we could go on all night, but I'm conscious that um, you've been at work all day and we can uh, we can round up. But thank you very much, Lauren. Really appreciate your time. If anyone wants to get more information from you, ask more questions, where's the best place? And I'd encourage people to check out the UKC website because your presentation was excellent. And I'm sure that was that's um, that's elsewhere as well. But where can people get in touch with you, Lauren? You know what? They can go to uh, LM, like Lauren Michael, uh, Lando at gmail.com for email and then uh any of the social medias is just my name lauren lando at you know uh lauren lando at uh for twitter and for instagram so and one thing that i want to make sure that i get across here because i think when a lot of people hear me talk or they hear me present they think that i am this closed chain kind of closed chain kind of monster when it comes to programming and it's anything but that you know it it's a periodized it's a periodized view of movement and early in my off season like there's some very close things that are more rhythm rhythm based like slides and light tempoed slides and karaoke's and some low walks to work on bend and restoring some some of those things that are very close and then I get into more accumulation of that type of work in my periodization in my annual plan but then I get into closed drills that have a deceleration emphasis then I get into open drills that are or maybe now the open drill is like, you know, majority of the drill, but you don't know when you're stopping. And so what I'll do is I'll play around with when does the drill become open? And at the end of the day, it comes, it, 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 it's got to match the calendar. And as we get closer into, you know, real world games, these guys are going, you know, open, open drill responses, but they're also then doing it under a metabolic uh, need. So there's a, it, it's, it's a full annual plan of closed to open and uh, i just want to make sure i get that out there. i think a lot of people hear me present they're like ah he <laughs> does his cone drills and it couldn't be further from the truth okay so just in this period of time that we're in this strange world that we we are now living in how has that changed what your athletes are doing from a like you say an open versus closed type situation sure i think this time of year i would be doing um things that are more closed anyway right now okay yeah. Um, and then as our off season would continue, it starts to open up, open up. And then we, we get into what is full, full on reactive, but it's about a nine week progression at that point. But I've had eight weeks on the front end of the nine weeks to set them up for a lot of the things that they're doing now. So, um, you know, it's just building the way I look at it is just building blocks of motor learning and, and tissue tolerance. People always talk about motor learning and you should never do the same drill twice. Yeah. Well, that's great. Okay, how, how do I get stronger on a bench press? Do I get stronger by doing one rep on a bench press and I go do a single arm dumbbell press and I do an incline and then I do it? No, you have to saturate. You have to saturate. If we talk about the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands, I've got to make sure that I saturate enough to be able to 
impose a response to adapt. Mm -hmm. so, any, any advice to people out there who are coaching athletes as you are, as everyone is, remotely? How are you getting around making sure they get the information they need and you can keep in touch with them and do all the good stuff that needs to be done at this, this weird time? Yeah, I think during this weird time, the number one thing is just the check-ins with everybody yeah. and make sure everybody's doing good. Um, but I also think you need to be smart that you don't overdo it right now as well because at the end of the day, you don't want to really suppress the immunity right now. You want to be able to bolster it but not suppress it. So you need to be smart in the workloads, I think, that you're prescribing. Um, but I think video feedback is a great tool. I think video feedback is a great tool to to sit there and say, hey, you know, um, you know, I, I can't currently do it right now this time of year for our players uh, because we haven't officially reported. But um, if we were in a position where we were reported, it'd be nice to be able to sit there and say, you know, send me some video of you doing, you know, your acceleration work and then be able to uh, conference call with them afterwards and say, hey, looks great. Keep doing what you're doing. Or, you know what, you know what, try this on the next one. Uh, you know, the next time you have an acceleration day, try this. The coaching has got to become pretty remote and uh, boy, you got to have a lot of trust in your program that the guys have really bought into it. I think before all this happened too, that you communicated enough to them, um, uh, on the front end of the importance of certain qualities. Gosh. Excellent. Thank you very much, Lauren. Really do appreciate it. And yeah, stay safe over there and we'll, we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure, stay mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 292 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Lauren. So massive thanks to Lauren for giving up his time. Even during this strange time, everyone's super busy, especially Lauren running the facility, doing the business side of things there, but also at the Broncos and, um, and smashing it over there too. So really appreciate him giving up his time. But also really appreciate our sponsors today. Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, AthleteMonitoring.com and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so really appreciate them supporting the podcast and supporting me and each guest that comes on uh, every week. So thank you for tuning in. More great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.